Today I want to speak on the topic of Thanksgiving and kind of contextualize it around some events that happened in the gospel. So turn with me over to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. It says, in those days, there was, a, a, again, a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, verse 2, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. Verse 4, and the disciples said to him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here? in this desolate place to satisfy these people. And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to the disciples to serve them. And they served them to the people. And they also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets of what was left over of the broken pieces. Verse 9. And about 4,000 there. And, all, and, and he sent them away. Lord, help us as we study. This story is unusual in that it is, it is miraculous that Christ would feed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish. But to the disciples, it wasn't that unusual because less than a month earlier, he had done it with five loaves and two fish and fed more people, 5,000 at that point. What's really strange is that the disciples questioned, where are we going to get all this food? It's, it's like their memory had just vanished, disappeared. And it's amazing how immediate need causes us to have amnesia. We have to relive. We have to go through it all over again. Oh, God, how are you? I don't know how this is going to be met. Lord, where are you in this moment? And he just did a miracle last week. Just last week, he just came through with you big time. But now the need has caused you to have me to have amnesia. And we can't remember what God did. Or maybe we thought it was a special dispensation of grace just for that moment. And we've done something so wrong this week that surely he's not going to show up and help. Maybe he's trying to teach us something new through need this week. And he's not going to show up and help. And you forget that you, you had the same thought last week. Oh, God, maybe he won't show up and help, and he had just met a, a need in your life the week before. It's amazing how need causes us to have amnesia. There was a large crowd. Now, the distinction between the miracle of the 5,000 and the 4,000 primarily is location and then the number of baskets of food they had left over. The feeding of the 5,000 was in the area of Bethsaida. 
which is in the northeast portion of the Sea of Galilee. This miracle happened, we think, literally within the month, within three to four weeks, and it happened on the southeastern Sea of Galilee in a place they would call the Decapolis, which represented ten, ten cities of the Roman Empire that all had the same kind of language and culture, Semitic in their orientation. Uh, Sumerian, for the most part, uh, Jewish influence, but kind of a group of people that all spoke the same language, thought the same thing, and kind of related to one another. Now, they were, they were cultural centers as well as financial centers, but for the most part, because they had such commonality, they were grouped together. Decapolis meaning ten cities. Copolis cities, excuse me, Opolis cities, Deca ten. And the 5,000, for the most part, was done near the region where Jesus grew up, Bethsaida. Uh, 15 miles from Nazareth, a uh, few miles from Cana, all the places where he ministered in his early years and probably went to synagogue, Jewish church, on a regular basis. The miracle of the 4,000 was primarily uh, done for the Gentile population with some Jews mixed in. Now, it's not that Jesus was, was automatically reaching the Gentile population. This just happened to be his route down to Jerusalem as he was heading to one of the feasts. And people began to, to flock to him. I mean, Jew and Gentile thought they could get their need met with Christ. This also, feeding of the 4,000, came after a period of vacation. Jesus went on vacation. Now, the region proper of Israel was no longer as boundaried as it was in the time of David. Why? Because Rome occupied all of what we now know as the Middle East. And so there, there were no re reason to have any boundaries of countries because it was all considered the Roman Empire. Yet there were cultural distinctions between people groups. And as you got to what would be an ancient border, things began to get a little mixed in terms of their culture, i.e. the Decapolis, which happened to be on the east side of the Jordan River, which wasn't proper for the Israel territory, which was the west side of the Jordan River. But you had people mixing in because it was the Roman Empire. Jesus had just finished a vacation in a place called Tyre or Sidon. They were neighboring cities to the north in a town in a, in a region called Phoenicia. And that's where we see Jesus uh, healing the Syrophoenician daughters, Syrophoenician woman's daughter of a malady of, of, of demon possession. And he was now coming back. It's interesting that, that this miracle of the 4,000 comes at about, oh, a year and a half to two years into Jesus' ministry. Right after this, we see Peter get, getting the revelation about who Jesus is being the Son of God. So the ministry has an, had an opportunity to build. People were beginning to follow Christ and think that he was more than just a good guy, more than just a fellow who was coming to stir up the pot of rebellion against Rome, probably, and against Herod, though Jesus said nothing about that in either area. But the people were hoping that somebody like that would come, and so they were following him, not to mention the fact that he preached really good. And he had some ability to see people who were lame, walk, and blind, see, and deaf, hear. Oh, he was amazing. 
And so now you had not just Jewish people, but the word had spread because the boundaries of Israel were no longer as near, nearly clearly defined as, as usual. And, and Gentiles were following, people like us. And, and although that wasn't his primary outreach people group, he sure did care about them. And so if they wanted to tag along, great. And here we have a mixed audience, very large crowd, it says. And Jesus loves to challenge our faith with a large need when we've got little resources. Consider it normal. No longer consider it unusual. When he wants you to meet a huge need and you don't have all the stuff necessary to do so. This is what he does to bring us to a different understanding of how he wants to meet the need through us, that we might grow in our expectation of him being a supernatural God. It's not just about strategic planning. It's not just about good preparation. It's about coming to a moment when the need is bigger than you are, and then what? How will you respond? Will you fade into the woodwork? Saying, oh, this must be for the pastor because I'm not trained enough. This must be for the church because I'm not big enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have a house big enough. I don't have enough spiritual insight. You've got all that you need to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. And when he begins to put needs in front of you, never say it's too much because you're too little. Large crowd, bigger than the disciples could manage, 4,000 people following. And this was not a a, a fly-by-night crowd. See, the 5,000 was following for one day. One day. They just went out for a day conference. They go on back home. But this group of people, three days they had been out there, and they didn't plan that. See, Jesus just preached a long time, and you get mad at me that I go 30 minutes. He just kept on preaching. And the people kept on staying. Day went into night, that went into day, that went into night. And folks were still there. He woke up the next day and said, y'all still here? My goodness. There was no planning for this. It was just happening. And now it was the end of the third day. And these folk were getting hungry. Yet, Jesus realized, gosh, if I send them away, Not only will they faint, they won't have an opportunity to hear me preach more. The conference will be over. We need to meet their need right now. Large crowd. There's a large community out there, people. Chantilly is about 50,000 people. Fairfax County, over a million. The Washington metropolitan area, over 7 million. It's a large group of people out there that are hungry hungry God wants to do something with this small group of people of 3,000 and meet the need are you listening to me there's a large group of people in your employment your co-workers your supervisors people that have to report to you two three hundred four hundred and there you are God wants to meet some needs with those people So so he comes to the disciples, and he says, we want to feed them. 
time to feed these people. And, and, and the disciples say the same thing they said with the 5,000. Where are we going to get enough food to feed this multitude? And I imagine there was a long pause with a very intent stare. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just playing director, producer here. If I were to put this in, in cinema, long pause, one of those, I'm doing something. So where are we going to get enough food to feed these people? <laughs> one of those. One of those that says, we just did this last week. We just did this last week. Why are you asking me that stupid question? But Jesus doesn't say that. He just says this. How many loaves do you, what do you have? What do you have? Now, it's evident from the answer that the disciples weren't going to go hungry. The people were. But the disciples weren't going to go hungry. Because Jesus said, what do you have? Oh, um, uh, well, you, you know, we, we, got, we got some loaves. We got seven, seven loaves. Seven. Just a few. Just a little bit. Just a few loaves. He's going to take our food again. Just a few loaves. He's going to take. We, we got to build a big, big building. 1,500 seats. We got to build a building. You want to sit in that building. You want people you bring to sit in that building. But our focus is usually, can other people meet this need? When Jesus asks you, what do you got? You want to be part of this miracle? What do you got? What do you got? Seven loaves. Large crowd, and Jesus is asking his disciples for what they have because he wants, wants them to be a part of the miracle. Now, could he, if he wanted, just create loaves? There's evidence that he created eyeballs. When a fella was blind from birth, and the disciples came to him and said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind in John chapter 9? There's evidence that Jesus, it says he spat in, on the ground and made mud from the spittle and then packed it on the brother's eyes and said, go wash in the pool. We, there's evidence to suggest that the reason he did this kind of miracle, did it in this fashion, is because we're made from the dust of the earth. And that the, the fella didn't have any eyeballs. And so Jesus used the dust of the earth to create them. The other miracles, he just touched him, Or he, he spat on the guy. By the way, don't do that if you're trying to do a miracle. <laughs> just, just saying. It's, it's not, it's not the, the, the preferred strategy of choice when doing miracles. Unless you can really open the eyes. But could he not have just made loaves appear? I think so. But why didn't he? Could he not just make money appear for our building? I think so. But why doesn't he? Because he wants to know what you have. And what you have is ill-equipped to meet the need. Seven loaves for 4,000 people. Huh. 
six bucks for 10 million? Impossible. But he wants to know what you have. And so the disciples reluctantly tell him. And he says, give him to me. And I imagine they're sitting there thinking, there goes lunch, dinner. Man, he took our food again. And it says the first thing he did is that he gave thanks and he broke it. There is something about giving thanks for a little that allows you to have much. We're usually reluctant to give thanks for the little and complain about the lot we don't have. We look at the little as not being enough. So thanksgiving is not the the, the motivation. It's not the thing that bubbles up out of our soul on a regular basis. It's not natural. When we're looking at, 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 at dinner and we don't have much and we have to split up the little bit that we do have and to give thanks for it. We're thinking, why don't we have more when there's not enough money for the month? Why don't we have more when we don't have the strength we want to have in our physical bodies to be able to accomplish what we need? We feel weak when we need to be strong. Why isn't there more? And we, we rarely are knee-jerking in our response to thanksgiving for what we do have. Rarely. It takes a spiritual mature person, spiritually mature person, to come to the point where the knee-jerk response is, thank you, Lord, for this $2. Oh, Jesus, I am so grateful for this $2. I really am. And, and, and to go beyond the ability to give thanks and then to say, not just thank you, Lord, for the $2, but here's my $2. The story of Elijah and Elisha, those two stories are, are so parallel. They're, they're similar. And, and their miracles and, and, and their impact on society, both of them dealt with widows who didn't have enough to provide for their own. Both of them saw people raised from the dead. But in those two circumstances where a widow did not have enough resources to provide, One in a famine, the other because her husband had died and he had left debts. Both of the prophets asked the widows, what do you have? And if the widows had not surrendered what they had in order to accomplish a miracle, they wouldn't have had what they had. Are you listening to me? They would not have had what they had. They would have lost what they had. And Elijah's day with the J... That widow said, I only have a little bit of flour at all, and then my my boy and I are going to eat it and die. In Elisha's day, the creditors are coming to take my boys because my husband died and had debts. What are we going to do? Both of them were required to use what they had in order to get more. But everything we have, even if we're grateful for it, we want to hold on to it. Says to Jesus, say, give me what you got. But, Lord, we won't have lunch. And remember, the disciples, many of them were married. They weren't, they weren't just running around as single 17-year-olds. So they had families. Can you imagine them going back to their wives who were just about to prepare lunch and, and, and dinner and, and say, baby, I, I, need, I need the bread. For what? Well, Jesus is going to feed all these folk. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he wants us to bring the bread. Well, how am I going to feed Jimmy? What about Eli? 
What are we going to do for lunch? I don't know, baby. Sweet, you're going to have to talk to Jesus. You're going to have to talk to Jesus. Tell him I need to feed my babies. Baby, just give me the, give me the bread. Yeah, I, I'm his employee. Give me the bread. I got no choice. I'm his staff member. Conversations like this happened on the regular because nobody could figure out what in the world Jesus was going to do with whatever he asked from them. Give it to me. And it says he gave thanks. Do you know, and, and this is going to mess with your tradition a little bit, but I studied the idea of praying before meals. Do you know there are only a couple of examples in all of Scripture when Jesus did that? Just a couple. Three to be exact. When he prayed to feed the 5,000 and he had five loaves and two fish. He prayed to feed the 4,000 and he had seven loaves and a few fish. And for communion. That's it. Why? Because the Jewish tradition was to pray and thank God after you ate, not before. Deuteronomy 8, verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, make sure when you rise, you bless the Lord your God who has provided for you, who has given you the ability to eat like this. That became the standard, standard of how to posture Worship while you eat. Jews prayed after. Gentiles developed the pattern of praying before. And primarily the Gentiles developed the pattern of praying before because Paul said this in 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, talking about what was forbidden by people who had no knowledge, were legalistic in their orientation and wouldn't allow people to eat certain foods. He said, I want you to know, that all things are good if they are received with thanksgiving and they are consecrated by the word of God in prayer. So because of that exhortation and the fact that Jesus three times when we see food being a part of the order of the miracle prayed before, Christians have developed the idea of praying before the meal. Now when Paul speaks about praying before the meal, he's talking about Gentile folks who are not eating kosher. But when God speaks about praying after the meal, he's talking about a people that already have dietary restrictions. Things that they knew they were supposed to eat and things they knew they were not supposed to eat. And if they ate the stuff they were supposed to eat because God had already said, this is clean, it was already blessed. So they didn't need to pray for it beforehand. They just needed to thank him afterwards. You know, there's a message in there. Might not be a bad idea to do what God has already said rather than asking him to bless what you don't know is already blessed. You have no idea what what you ask for is really in the will of God. You just want it real bad and you're praying beforehand to try to get it. Why not do what he already says because that is already blessed and you can bless him afterwards for blessing what you've already done. There's There's a message in that. Jews prayed afterwards because they knew, I'm eating this and God has already blessed it. Do his will. Ask to do his will. It's already blessed and you can bless him afterwards for the doing of it. Gentiles, you do not know what we are going to put in our mouths. No idea what we're going to eat. Crab, lobster, tasty, but not on the menu. 
Not on the kosher menu, alligator. You ever had crocodile tail? Not on the menu. Things like this, Paul said, they'll be blessed if you pray before. So prayer before the meal is supposed to be that which has a supernatural element to change whatever you're about to put in your mouth and make it good for you. It is not just a moment for you to thank God for what he's given you. Jesus prayed before the 5,000. What happened? Five loaves and two fish became that which would feed all of them. He prayed before the 4,000. What happened? Seven loaves and a few fish became that which would feed all of them. He prayed before communion, instituted a supernatural event, a consecratory moment where bread and wine could actually be represented as his body and his blood. Paul says, pray before you eat. It's supposed to be that which is a supernatural event, not just a moment of religious fervor, not just a moment of tradition. Jesus prays, thanks God, and then begins to break it. And what happens? He breaks it, and as he breaks it, the piece he he broke, the two pieces are as large as the piece he just broke. And he breaks it again. And the pieces he broke are as large as the piece he just broke. And he breaks it again. And he breaks it again. And he breaks it again. And he breaks And he keeps breaking. And the disciples are just looking at that saying, how does he do this? How does he do this? How does he do this? And then he had the disciples go and distribute the food. Because he wanted them to participate in seeing the multiplication so that their faith could be built and raised up in a way that, gosh, these disciples were going to have to change the world with the little bit of knowledge they had, and they had to make their faith work. Jesus wasn't going to be on the planet being their pastor forever. They were going to be the leaders of the church in a minute. They had to have a supernatural element to what they, they, they ministered. It couldn't be just word. It had to be deed. They had to watch this. And 4,000. People got fed. Amazing. And then they picked up stuff. It says they picked up seven large basketfuls. In the miracle of the 5,000, they picked up 12 basketfuls. I don't know that there was any less to pick up this time than there was last time. But the size of the containers were different. The words for basket are very different in both passages. It would be as if uh, that basket you, you carry home from the grocery store was the feeding of the 5,000, 5, just regular bag. And then you have seven large baskets, which are the hefty trash bags. Probably same amount of food, just different capacities in the containers. And all that came back to the disciples. Now, most of you who are very clean wouldn't think that it's proper to eat somebody's leftovers, their scraps. Yeah, some of y'all are groaning even as we speak. But the communal nature of the Middle East, in general, there was a huge plate around which people would sit. Acts, not sit, recline. 
and they would all eat from the same plate. They'd break off bread and share it with one another with their hands. That still happens in parts of Africa and the Middle East. Just the way it was. We have kind of siloed our little eating spots, haven't we? Every little eating spot is their own at the table. and nobody, You can't reach over somebody's plate and grab some, bite on it, and then put it back. You can't do that. That's not going to happen. But this is the way life was in the Middle East. They just shared life. Shared life. And so for the disciples, seven baskets, seven large baskets were left over. What does God want to leave over for you? What does he want to leave over for you? Most people will never find out because they're going to hold on to their seven loaves. They'll never release. They'll never give thanks. And they'll never find out how much more God wants to give them. How many baskets full? How large will they be? Because they hold on. And I'm begging you, First of all, give thanks for what you got. You will never, you will never grow out of wanting more. Never. It's it's part of the makeup of how God created us. So we are people that are always trying to enlarge our boundaries, trying to acquire things. Now, the problem is this. We have, we have put the boundary at the acquisition. So we desire more things, but God desires more things for us that we might give more things away, that we might be blessers, that we might be distributors, not just hoarders. So yes, God wants to make us bigger, but he generally wants to make his people bigger in a different way than the norm. Because he wants us to understand that he is the God of the supernatural and that he lives today and wants to move on our behalf. And we live in a world of need that needs the supernatural inserted. And if the supernatural be not inserted, then we are relegated simply to the philosophical debate of whose God is best. Now, in that environment, I believe I could win every debate Because my theology is better and my God will support my intellect to be able to confound the wisdom of the world. But that is not the only tool in my tool belt. We become one note musicians. Theology, 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 theology. Trying to figure out how to do apologetics, apologetics, apologetics. Simply words. And we never get into the place where Paul was. When he says, I did not come to you, O Corinth, in word only. Thessalonica in word only. But in demonstration of the Spirit's power. Where is that in our testimony and witness? Where is it? And God gives us prompts. Those prompts are this. What do you got? There's a big need out there. What do you got? Let's respond well. 